0: There's a verse in your Connect magazine, which is a new design this month. Um, There's a verse in there, which is from Isaiah, which says, See, I'm doing a new thing, and I believe God is doing new things amongst us. It's time for people to step out and trust God in new ways. It's time for me to step out and trust God in new ways. Um, We've got an illustration of that, I suppose, for you. Um, Someone stepping out and trusting God with something new, and I'm going to ask Jacob to come. Because uh, Jacob's actually speaking today. Um, so, Jacob, this is the first time you've preached on a Sunday. You've spoken, I know, to the youth yeah. uh, before. But we're going to just pray for you. And Jacob's going to share what's on his heart um, with us today. He's gone already. Let's
1: get the Come water back. table. stress me. <laughs> thank
0: you. Is that going to work all right, Giles? that
1: so on the right spot.
0: Okay. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I thank you for the word you've placed in Jacob's heart over these last months, and I pray that as he shares today, uh, you would speak to each one of us. Lord, show us that you can use us today. Show us what's on your heart for us as a church, and bless him and strengthen him. Help his mind be clear, and his spirit open to what you want to say, even as he's sharing with us, in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Yeah. Um, good morning, everyone. and Happy New Year to you all. Um, uh, I hope you've had a good start to the year so far, however, however it's taken its place. I was really hardcore on New Year's Eve. I stayed up till uh, about quarter past twelve. That was me dumb. Um, obviously very excited about 2016. Um, <clears throat> so, for those of you who don't know me, I am Stuart Sum, um, and I've I've been uh, at university for the last few months. And, and Judas, my mum. <laughs> do I keep going? Nathaniel's my brother. Um, <laughs> Andy says he's my friend, and he is my friend. Um, so I've just left school, and uh, I've been at the University of Edinburgh for the last four months studying theology. Um, <clears throat> so you might be expecting some really wise words of wisdom for my four months. Um, but I've still got three and a half years of my degree to go, so don't get your hopes up yet. One thing that I have found at university in comparison to school is there seems to be a lot, it's a lot less cliquey because you don't spend as much time with the same people all the time. You're not surrounded by the same people all the time. But what I used to do is I used to enjoy watching... Um, the different groups congregate together at different places. Um, and there was always one thing that seemed to define each group. So a, a school like mine, which was a, a boys' school, grammar school, there were, there were three groups that I'm going to look at today. And the first one was the Rugby Lads, who would be several inches taller than me and several inches wider than me, often, even in sixth form, making me feel like a year seven again. Then another group we had were the Oxbridge Boys. These would be endlessly arguing about a teacher and the validity of a point made in a lesson. Whipping out their textbooks at a moment's notice just to, just to argue the point. Um, and then we also had the bad men who uh, were not as well-dressed as these gangsters. Um, they, they were quite tame, but they often used to sneak out to the park at lunchtime, come back smelling slightly funny. You kind of, the teachers would give them a look of, hmm, what have you been up to? But they, they never got caught. But they were the ones that, you're always nervous about if a teacher moved you in a lesson that they'd move you next to one of them because they could draw on your planner and they can make it look like you're talking in the lesson and you get in trouble it's terrifying we could probably tell that i was not the most exciting people at school um, with one of my teachers they taught me for three years and it took them two and a half years to learn my name um, so i really stood out in gcse physics <laughs> but what what always seems to amaze me about these groups is how they formed Now. And how do you gain acceptance into these groups? For the rugby lads, for example, you've seen my mum and dad. You've seen my parents' height. Um, they're, they're brilliant, they're fantastic, and I've been really blessed by them, but they've not been blessed with height at all. Um, look at, If you see my dad's physique, he's, he's never going to be a rugby player. <laughs> what chance have I got? Then if you go to the Oxbridge group, I struggle with GCSE chemistry and physics. I much prefer to sit around thinking about things. And as my brother often says to me, my whole degree is just four years of sitting around thinking. Um, when, when you do things like chemical equations and experiments, I thought it was great fun th- setting things on fire. But I had no idea how things changed, or why they changed, and what the implications were. And as a, th- and as a theology student, if it doesn't say it in the Bible, I'm lost. So trying to argue with these six or seven guys off to do chemistry at Cambridge... Would not go down well. And finally, the bad men. I couldn't, I felt guilty if I wrote in blue ink instead of black ink when the teacher told me to write in black. I could never wander off to the park at lunchtime when I'm not allowed. I, I, that would be crazy. So it seemed for me that I was outside all of these groups at school. But this doesn't mean I had a bad time at school. I had a great time at school. I loved school. And I was always treated well by everyone. But at times, it, it could feel a bit like there was some private group's secretive side that meant if you're outside, you couldn't benefit from the joys of being in the group. When we look at the Old Testament and the relationship between God and the Israelites and every other group of people, it can seem similar to that analogy of school, the, the cliques. It can appear that God just looks after the Israelites and only them. We see stories of God helping the Israelites destroy their armies because they are in the way of God's plan for them. They are restricting his chosen people. It can often look like an us-versus-them complex, going on where the Israelites are God's people, and God is an objective God, turning away from all the other Israelites. I want to dispel this myth today and look at a character that from the outside would not fit into the norm, but God used him in an incredible way that changed Israel and the Israelites. This man's name is Caleb. In Numbers 13, we hear a story of Caleb and the spies. No, it's not those kind of spies, although that would make a really exciting story. Um... For well, the Israelites have just left Egypt and come into the wilderness. Before them, they have the land, a vibrant, prosperous, promised land to them by God. And there are 12 tribes of Israel. And from each of the tribe, one of the leaders is chosen. And Caleb was chosen from the tribe of Judah. Now, it says in Numbers 13, uh, verse 1 and 2, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. And verse 25 to 33 says... At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the the desert of Paran. There they reported to him the whole assembly and showed him the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, the Canaanites lived near the sea, along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the, men who, but the men who had gone with him said, We can't attack these people, they are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes." And we look the same to them. What we see here is the land promised to Israel, Canaan. And God tells Moses to send some spies to go and explore this land. To go and grasp it before they can ta- get a grasp of it before they take it. Caleb is one of the men chosen as one of the leaders of Judah to go out and scout the land. When they come back from their 40-day mission, everyone starts to talk. Seemingly quite excited, ready to enter the land. But then they think about the people that are there. And everyone quietens down. Everyone is full of fear. These guys were giants. So if you imagine the size of me next to one of these rugby players and the fear that the bad men get a strike into you when you're sat next to them and they're drawing in your planner, that, that's how terrifying these people were. Only two of the spies out of the 12 go on to say, let's go into the promised land. Let's go and take it as our own. as what God says. Here, These were Caleb and Joshua. What, when Caleb stood out, was where he speaks up against the other spies, silencing them, saying, we should go up and take this land, uh, the possession of this land, for we can certainly do it. This guy was ready to go and do what God had promised him. What I found interesting studying Caleb in my degree was his heritage. Throughout Judaism, there is a large focus on heritage. We see this at the start of Matthew's Gospel, for example, where you see the genealogy of Jesus. It's recited and an emphasis is placed on his significant ancestors and the number of generations between major events. This all stems from Abraham's blessing in Genesis 22:17, where it says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities, uh, of their enemies. Many Orthodox Jews still today keep great family trees, being able to trace their lineage back to Abraham and the original promise. So if we see here in this well-done... Um, little PowerPoint slide, we see God gives Abraham this blessing, and this was meant to go down onto the eldest son. So Abraham's eldest son, Isaac, gets the blessing. And then what we see is Isaac's eldest son, Esau, is meant to get the blessing, but due to him selling his blessing for a bowl of soup and a tricksy brother, Jacob, um, he goes on to steal his birth line, and it's not followed by Esau. So the descendants of these two are from Jacob as the Israelites and from, the, from Esau as the Edomites. And these do not get on at all. God never abandons the Edomites, but you see a heavy favor placed on the Israelites. And after several generations from the exodus of Egypt, the Israelites are in the wilderness. And there's still this tension between the two groups. They're awaiting The, of, the Israelites are awaiting the fulfillment for God's promise to them. Caleb appears as one of the spies to go out into this chosen land. But he talks of him as a Kenizzite. These Kennesites were originally an Edomite clan. Immediately we see Caleb being from a different clan and being brought in to the Israelites. He was from an enemy clan. It's like today, if if you think of football and you think of Manchester United fans and Manchester City fans, they hate each other's guts. And imagine just one day a Manchester City fan walking up and being part and being accepted into these Manchester United fans. It would be crazy. What's even more crazy is if this Manchester City fan started leading a group of Manchester United fans and started ruling over them it would it would make the news I'm sure it'd be crazy so although his background doesn't seem to fit of Caleb his heritage is not following the Abrahamic tradition this is seen as irrelevant what Caleb showed was that it's not only people from Israel that God used and spoke through now the name Caleb itself means dog and this has been interpreted as meaning a name of degradation Calling him dog would show his lower class and that he was from a tribe and not a valid citizen of the tribe of Judah. There were only, out of all the spies, there were only two that wanted to accept God's promise and spoke up, and this was Caleb. Caleb was not, through his genealogy, part of God's chosen people, but was wanting to accept what God had for them. It didn't matter that he didn't seem to fit because he was still used by God. We can learn from Caleb that we don't need to fit a man-made stereotype to be used by God. If you can't speak publicly and preach from a pulpit or play a single chord on the guitar, that doesn't mean that God won't use you. Going back to another football analogy, imagine that we say all the worship leaders were left-wingers and all of the preachers were right-wingers and they were a team against this metaphorical team of life. Now, it'd be rubbish because, for starters, they don't even have a goalkeeper. So every time the other team had a shot, the ball would go straight in. And every time they go to cross the ball in for someone to finish it, there'd be no one there to finish it. So they would, they would suck. Also, um, so it would be a disaster. And imagine, okay, if everyone in this room was a preacher and they had a word to bring to the front, how long would those meetings be? <sighs> Take forever. <laughs> God hasn't called us all to the same tasks and given us the same abilities. There is no Christian stereotype for you to be used by God. The danger of thinking there's a stereotype is saying is, is us saying no to what God has said because we don't think we're acceptable or up to this, up to this standard. So if we, if we stop ourselves saying yes for what God has for us or even stop expecting God to use us in the way he's gifted for, there are times when God asks us to do things we don't feel p- fully prepared for or which we feel others are better qualified for. I feel a bit like that now. But whatever it is God has said to you, be bold and courageous. You don't have to fit a stereotype to be used by God. Our limitations do not overshadow God's plans for our lives. So if, we, if it's not Caleb's heritage that make him used by God, so why then was he used? What allowed him to see God's plan and not fall under the fear that everyone else was under? In Numbers 20, uh, 14, 24, it says, We hear Caleb being spoken of as standing out, and the promise that I had from him fulfilled due to his heart and his attitude. The verse says, because, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. There are two words and phrases that I want to quickly highlight that stood, up, stood out to me, and these are different spirit and wholeheartedly. What is this different spirit that's mentioned? Caleb is set apart by God, as he does not disobey God, but listens to him, and sees the plans in front of him as an opportunity. As not, as not something to bring him fear. It can be so easy to be scared of not knowing what's going to happen in our lives. But if we follow God and what he says, then he will bring us into the promised land. Caleb was a different spirit and stood out from the rest of the Israelites. Maybe because he was not an Israelite. But I think more importantly, he was not a passive acceptor of God's plan, but an active partaker. He went out and said, yes, let's take this land for ourselves. This near battle cry of going, yes, God, I want what you have for me. Come and use me and bring me into this into your plans is the different spirit that's mentioned. The spirit of fear is the norm for people and the norm was the norm for the Israelites. However, when you look at who God is, this fear seems completely irrational. I was thinking about this just the other day. And when we look at times in our lives and find it stressful and feel as though on our own, God will help us. We're on our own. But God will always help us through those difficult times. None of us enjoy these times. So why let ourselves get there in the first place? If we give everything over completely to God and act in a wholehearted way, like Caleb did, then what have we got to lose? I remember hearing a sermon once where the preacher said, you shouldn't give God the most of your heart. You should give God all of your heart. This is the most godly attitude It's not just about putting God first in everything, but putting everything in his hands. Your finances, your plans, your dreams, because God knows what's best for you. I personally cannot think of anyone better to put everything in. Because God is all-powerful. He's all-loving. He's all-knowing. He's the beginning and the end. He's my Father. He's Almighty. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's eternal. He's my comfort and my strength. Now, if I was to compare that to me, the selfish, fickle, very limited in power or or influence, and often quite lazy me, it seems quite obvious who you should put your trust in. Caleb saw his relationship with God and saw that he could trust him with everything. The fear he had and the possessions he had were nothing in comparison to what God had. He will have had a family and some earthly possessions, but even that wasn't holding him back. He was encouraging God's plan to come into being. I mentioned earlier that the name for Caleb means dog, and this is translated as, a, as, as a, a term of degradation. But there is a second interpretation, which is loyalty. We don't know if this came after the spies' report or, or where it came, but what we do know is Caleb was loyal, and he was loyal to God. Caleb's attitude of loyalty and complete trust are what led him to be used by God. He didn't have any superpowers. He was just a man who put God first, and because of this, God let, led him into great things and promises for his life. God used Caleb because of his attitude and rewarded him for this. After seeing this attitude that Caleb holds, God speaks to him again, promising that I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. In Joshua 14, 45 years later after the original spying process, Caleb was able to receive his promise. It says, Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh and the Kenizzite said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea.'" About you and me, I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites went up with me, made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord, my God, wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, "The land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance, and that of your children will forever, because you have followed the Lord, my God, wholeheartedly." Now then, just as the Lord had promised, he kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses. Well, Israel moved around in the wilderness, so here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out into battle as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord has promised me that day. You yourself have heard then that the Anakites were there, and their cities were large and fortified. But, the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron belonged to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. This passage, talking about Caleb, says he followed the Lord, my God, wholeheartedly, or followed the Lord, the God, wholeheartedly three times. Also, these promises that the Lord gave to Caleb were fulfilled, and he was equipped for all that God had planned. At 85 years old, Caleb was still ready to be used by God. Age was not an issue for him. I know often as a youth, we were taught that you're never too young to be used by God. But the same works, exactly the opposite, when you're never too old to be used by God. But one thing that we never see change in Caleb, he might get older, but his attitude to God wanting him to use him never changes. He declares, now give me this hill country that the Lord has promised me today. There is the same desire and hunger to have God's will fulfilled as there was 45 years ago. It's not unknowingness and just a passive acceptance, but an onward pressing of following God's will wholeheartedly. We never hear any physical attributes of Caleb. We never hear about his mental ability or his intelligence. What we hear is his attitude towards accepting God. God used him because of his loyalty and acceptance, because he wanted to put God's will before anything else. Now this attitude and this heart are what we need, if we are to be used by God. I remember when we were at Soul Survivor over the summer as a youth group, the theme was missions. And every night they had a different person come up and give a testimony of what their mission was. And the leader of the meeting, every night, asked them a couple of questions afterwards. And he always closed with this, what qualifications do you have to do this? And the person responded with none. I have nothing at all, apart from God. So it doesn't matter if you've not got qualifications. In the same way, it doesn't matter if you do have qualifications or have a degree or several degrees or a PhD. God will still be able to use you. He will use the aspects and the gifts he has given you to your full advantage. What I'm trying to say is that if you ever feel underqualified, you have everything you need in God. No one is perfect. I'm sure many of you will have heard this, this whole analogy before. Of, but there are plenty of characters in the Bible that were far from perfect, but God still used them. Noah was a drunk, Abraham was too old, Isaac was a daydreamer, Jacob was a liar, Leah was ugly, Joseph was abused, Moses couldn't do public speaking, Gideon was afraid, Samson had long hair and was a womanizer, Rahab was a prostitute, Jeremiah and Timothy were too young, David was an adulterer and a murderer, Elijah was suicidal, Isaiah, you'll be thankful I'm not doing this, preached naked, Jonah ran from God, (laughs) Naomi was a widow, Job went bankrupt, John the Baptist ate bugs, Peter denied Christ and the disciples even fell asleep while they were praying. Martha was worried about everything, and the, Sam, the Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small, Paul was too religious, and Lazarus was dead. If God went on to use all of these people for great things, with all of their flaws, whatever you think is holding you back from what God is, is saying to you, he will overcome. God will use everyone if they want to be used. God... His plan is the best for our lives, so we need to follow him wholeheartedly. Even though the promised land ahead may be scary or tough, God will use our loyal attitude to not only bring about his plan, but to bless us even further with it. God will overcome anything we think is holding us back. There is no Christian stereotype we need to fulfill. All God is looking for is a wholehearted, loyal attitude. So don't write yourself off. Don't exclude exclude yourself from God's plan. He will use you.
0: Amen. Thank you.